0: Yeah, let's, let's let's do this whole yeah. bit. Yeah. Let's let's start that again. Don't
1: call it a comeback. I've been here for years. I'm rocking my pants. What's stomps and beer.
2: Sue's. Jeffrey. It's 2017.
0: How did that happen?
2: I don't know, but it feels good to be back. <laughs>
0: It really does. How G'day. are you? I'm really <laughs> well. How are you? I'm
2: doing. I'm doing okay. Yeah. It, it's. Uh, it's like they say. It's like riding a bike, and it, it is.
0: Yeah. Who would have thought that podcasting would be the exact sort of thing that you can uh, drop for a little while, a bit of a hiatus, and pick up and still feel really at home in?
2: Yeah. A little bit of a hiatus. How long? What is it? Three years. Three years. Wow. A lot's changed. A lot has changed in three years. Um, yeah. What's new with you?
0: Oh, um, just about everything. I think last time we spoke, I had just arrived in Baltimore to work at the Baltimore Museum of Art. And mm-hmm. in that t- chat time... Just about everything in my life has changed. I am no longer at the BMA, although I'm still in Baltimore. I am now an assistant professor in the museum studies program at George Washington university, which is nice. fantastic. I am really loving teaching on museums and technology, but also museums and visitor experience, which is really lovely.
2: Cool. Uh,
0: still in Baltimore though. So I guess that hasn't changed, but, uh, married, there's a there's a little uh, kid on the way later what? this year. So uh, yeah, the uh, the world Holy has cow. definitely changed.
2: Wow, a lot (laughs) has gone on with you in the last three years. That's all awesome stuff, though.
0: Yeah, it's all very exciting stuff. What about you? Tell me what's
2: been happening. What's been happening with me? uh, Professionally, I'm still in Pittsburgh. I am uh, running uh, the studio here at Carnegie Museums of Pittsburgh, which is kind of like the design, development, and workflow laboratory for our four museums. It's really... Um, inspiring, creative, uh, fascinating work. Um, yeah, so I think we're, I mean, personally, uh, the kids are getting bigger, you know? Um, Yay. Playing some rock and roll again, which is good. Uh, Excellent. But Yeah, no, but I'm super stoked to be um, talking with you again. It's uh, something that I did miss over the years, and, and I'm looking forward to uh Getting back into the swing of things and and and, and exploring um, some really interesting ideas here in season two of Museo Punks.
0: Yeah, you and me both. So how did we get back together? Tell me a little bit as to why people are hearing our voices again.
2: So yeah, it was um, you know it was it was one of those things where we were uh, we were doing our things for a couple years and got a really great email from uh, from Liz Neely at AAM. Uh, and uh, she basically asked us, you know, would we ever think about doing version 2.0 of Museo Punks? And uh, I think we both kind of jumped at the chance, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's so exciting to be back doing the podcast again and also doing a podcast that this time around is presented by the American Alliance of Museums. I think... If you were to ask me about aspirations for this podcast when we'd started, I just hoped that some would would listen. Uh, I never yeah. imagined that this would actually become something that may live on a, a professional body home as well as as well as doing something that we just both get to love and explore what it means to be a progressive museum or a progressive museum practitioner yeah do you think so, that's something that's changed for you over the last couple of years how different do you think what you're thinking about now is from when we last did this
2: I, I you know I think a lot has changed in the sector um, when it comes to thinking about Um, progressive ideas you know when we started this in 2013 um, you know progressivism at least for the focus of this podcast was was squarely rooted in kind of digital at yeah. this point, you know, a lot of our f- our first eighteen episodes were really focused on on digital pro- progressivism in the sector, and I think over the years, um, and you know, some call it post digital, some call it um, other things, but I think the the holistic nature of progressivism is permeating through areas of the museum. Um, you know, outside of digital into education, obviously, and, and curatorial, and it's all kind of mingling together with these really forward thinking ideas. Uh, and so, you know, in my opinion, I think that's really where where I'm interested in in, in exploring. I don't know, what, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I agree. It's sort of been funny, the time away, sort of this maturation period has also been my time living in a different country and mm-hmm. in a country that's really been going through a lot. I mean, I think internationally the world has been going through some really interesting times and interesting conversations lately. But we have... I think the conversations now that we are having and that we need to be having are very different from the ones that I would have said were was important three years ago. I think technology, uh, while still hugely important for being a catalyst for a lot of these decisions... I think my emphasis on it and my thinking about it, I've I've started to get a very different relationship to where I think technology fits within, um, sort of within the complexity of these discussions.
2: Yeah. You know, I think um, season one, it will serve as a nice snapshot of, of, of where thinking was at a point in time for the museum sector and hopefully season two, um, you know, you know, five years down the road, you're looking back at season two and hopefully, you know, it will serve as that, as that snapshot in time. Speaking of snapshots in time, Suze, yes, uh, and doing some research for this first episode. Um, uh, I I noticed that our last episode was published on September 29th, 2014. Uh Do you know, I I did some, let's do some trivia. Do you know uh, what the number one song in the United States was (laughs) on September 29th, 2014?
0: I really don't, but I'm going to, had had T Swift's album dropped by that stage? It was
2: right before T oh, Swift.
0: Oh, okay. I I don't know. I I will say I went and saw her live in concert, and that was pretty amazing. Yeah. But uh, okay, tell okay. me what was just what was starting its
2: eight week reign at number one. It was all about that bass. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Star Wars had not been rebooted yet. Uh, We were still six months away from the launch of the Cooper Hewitt pen (gasps) and Donald Trump was still a wealthy real estate developer in New York City. So a lot has changed.
0: <laughs> a lot has changed. I had not even experienced my uh, my first Halloween living in America by that stage. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Or my first Thanksgiving. There have been many changes. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, it's good wow. to be back. And so, what what are we uh, what this episode, first episode? What are we going to be talking about?
0: So one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is you know we're talking about some political changes as you just mentioned uh, last time we were on. There was a very different political uh, space in terms of the president, et cetera, here in the US. And the last couple of months, I've been noticing report after report after report, which is really looking at how public trust in institutions has been plummeting in recent years. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's often thinking about government and business, but it's also reaching out to um, nonprofits and non-governmental organizations in fact in 2016 late 2016 um there was even one particular scale that dropped america to the level of a flawed democracy Hmm. due to the erosion of trust in government and elected officials now museums have often been um i think saved from drops in trust but i really wanted to Talk to you and 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 some guests yeah. to to think about what these huge institutional shifts in trust mean for institutions. Are museums still trusted? What does the nature of trust look like? And how does this how does the new political environment start to create different shifts for us as organisations?
2: Yeah, I mean it's such an important fundamental topic for uh, for museums to really think about. Um, and so we're <clears throat> we're very um, fortunate to to have some, a couple really great guests this episode. Um, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Fari Inzinga, um who's doing some interesting um, writing on the topic of public trust and art museums, and we're, we're also going to talk to to Adria Lewis um, from uh, the uh, Asian Pacific American Center uh, in DC, uh, yeah. who who is thinking a lot about how uh, and and whether museums, in fact, trust their public. So two sides of a very interesting um, issue there.
0: Absolutely. So why don't we get into those conversations now?
2: Fari Nzinga was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts, and graduated with a BA from Oberlin College in 2005. Fari earned both her M.A. and her Ph.D. in Cultural Anthropology from Duke University. Having lived in New Orleans since 2009, her dissertation explored Black-led, community-based institutions using art and culture to help achieve their social justice missions, as well as the political-economic landscape in which they operate. For two years, she worked as the Public Policy Officer at the New Orleans Museum of Art, where she attempted to facilitate institutional transformation around issues of transparency, access, inclusion, and equity. Currently, Fari is an adjunct professor of museum studies at Southern University at New Orleans, one of only two historically Black colleges and universities to house a master's-level museum studies program in the United States. Fari, thanks so much for uh, talking with us on MuseoPunks.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Oh, our, our pleasure. Um, so I think Susan and I both discovered your work uh, at MCN last year uh, in New Orleans, where you gave a talk called Public Trust and Art Museums. Um, and to the, the thesis of that talk really hinges on the nuanced differences between trust and public trust. Can you explain how these are different for our listeners?
3: Sure. Um, I think that trust in interpersonal relationships is a two-way street, and the way that public trust has been defined has largely been from within the art museum sector itself and hasn't really taken into account um, all of the contributions that audiences and other stakeholders are willing to make or wanting to make. So it seems to me like public trust in the art museum context is is really, is really a, a way of thinking thoughtfully about why they're doing what they're doing on behalf of the public that they're serving. Um, and so sometimes it can be a bit aspirational, and sometimes it can act like a justification. Um, but I think that for Art museums in particular, or museums that have collections in particular, um, public trust is really about understanding the time scale in a way. Like everything we're doing isn't just for the now and isn't just for today, but it's really about preserving things so that the next generation or however many generations down the line, people will still be able to look at these objects and interpret this information.
0: It's a really interesting idea that public trust was defined for the public and not with the public, whereas you talk about sort of interpersonal trust being this two-way street. Do you think these ideas are mutually exclusive? Do we need to have um, and inter- a sort of interpersonal trust in order to have public trust or are they such different ideas?
3: Well, I do think there's overlap and I especially in museums that have a very close relationship with the communities that they serve um, and I do think that public trust should take into account the, um, the ways in which the public wants to interact with and engage with museums. So I see that museums over time are opening themselves more and more to understanding the visitor experience and to um, really having conversations that try to move their practice forward, whether that's um, curatorial practice or whether that's you know, a new innovation in terms of exhibition design or technology. Um, that helps, you know, make things accessible to people. I really do think that hopefully, you know, we've been in a kind of 30-year period of conversation, so hmm. hopefully 30-something is the charm, and, you know, we can really start to put some of these ideas into action.
2: You know, and when, some of
3: the best museums out there are already
2: doing that. Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, when I think of the term public, I think... You know, um, it's so broad, right? And I, I come from kind of a communication background where there's a general saying that there's no general public. So, well, you know, what, what do you think museums can do to start to learn more about their public um, and the communities and, and the, the people um, and really start to identify who it is they're, they're serving?
3: Well, one thing that I learned when I was at NOMA, what our offices were in the basement of the museum. And all the fun stuff happens on the first, second, and third floors. So what I had to do, even though you know I felt tethered to my desk on so many occasions, was really create reasons to go outside of my um, office and yeah. to get out of the basement and to see with my own eyes the visitors coming in and the field trips and how people are interacting with the space, um, how people are interacting with each other in the space and even going outside of the museum wholly and um, talking to folks who don't necessarily frequent the museum but who are very much involved with arts and culture in the city or in the town where the museum is located, so I really do think that museums have so much um, fertile ground. It's that's been that hasn't been tilled just yet, in terms of going outside of their own walls to meet people where they're at and to understand, you know, what it is that they want and how they would like to engage. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, you're you're also just talking about people going inside their own walls and really spending time watching their visitors, talking to their visitors and being with them, which it shouldn't be a rare practice, but in some ways it actually is. That notion of getting away from your desk to go and spend time with visitors often seems to be quite a rare one. But I guess that also then brings up this idea that, part of what we're talking about when we're talking about things like public trust is an element of access and access can be uh, right across the museum. We can talk about the physical space to digital collections. What do you think are some of the key areas of access that when we really open them up can impact how museums serve their public and serve the public trust?
3: One of my favourite quotes is by a woman named Anna Julia Cooper. And Anna Julia Cooper was a black American woman who was born um, enslaved, Mm -hmm. and who over the course of her lifetime eventually saw freedom. Her mother was enslaved to her father, in fact. And um, Anna Julia Cooper would go on to graduate from Oberlin College, my alma mater, Um, and write books and attend international um, conferences around issues of pan-Africanism, around women's rights. And she said, when and where I enter, the whole race enters with me. Hmm. And she was talking about the ways in which when you offer a seat at the table to a black woman, she's not just going to represent her own interests but she's also going to represent the interests of the young people and the children in her community the men of her community as well as the women of her community um and i think that that quote for me is so powerful because it rings so true and she wrote this in 1892 by Mm. the way Mm. right and it's 2017 and i see um And I see museums as a place that can greatly benefit from people having access to go into that space on an equal footing, not just as visitors, but behind the scenes in order to make some decisions, in order to contribute to the conversation being had about art and culture, about civic engagement, you know, about some of the great democratic values of our time if Hmm. you will Um, which I think that a lot of times museums love to tout themselves as these kinds of citadels where this heady intellectual you know thing is going on in the background even if they're trying to make it accessible to the everyday person by not using language that could you know be confusing or exclusionary or what have you Um, so all that to say that I think issues of access really we do them a disservice when we speak only of A, the physical plant or um, B, the visitors who are able to you know be in the physical space. Because a museum is a physical space but it's also the ideas that animate that physical space. And so when you don't have people at the table, behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. constructing those ideas, deconstructing those ideas, representing those ideas, engaging with them, interpreting them, and so forth, then you really get a very monotone narrative that puts people off and in turn makes visitors feel as though that's not for me. And that's where you start to see issues of access really jamming up the works, you know? Mm -hmm. But it starts at the root, not at the level of the diversity of your visitorship. That's really just a symptom.
0: Fari, I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about that. One of the things, one of the lines that really stood out to me uh, in the piece that you wrote about public trust and art museums was this line that the trust of the public is earned when an art museum is seen as an authority on matters of artistic excellence. But then when we talk about inviting people into the door and not just into the building, but actually behind the scenes, I sometimes worry or not worry, but I'm, I'm curious about how those different ideas relate to one another. Do we, Is the museum still seen as the authority at that point when you're um, when you're sort of handing over that authority, how does that work?
3: Well, I think that's a really interesting conundrum, but as a, as a professor, when I am talking with my students, they always remark to me, you know, it's so interesting that just by virtue of being in a museum, an object becomes more valuable, mm-hmm. an artist becomes more valuable, an idea becomes more valuable, right? And, and you know, we may not have any idea what that object was, because guess what? We might not have anybody who is culturally competent enough to judge whether this object is of artistic excellence, right? So I think the anxiety that people uh, have around, you know, if we let more people in, will we be lowering the quality is really... Um, It's the wrong question to be asking, you know? I mean, you know someone smart when you see them. You're not just Mm -hmm. inviting any old person into the space and say, here, have access to all of the treasures and the resources that we have. You're making a a judgment and you're going out and you're trying to look for people who are going to have something to contribute, who are going to... um, also believe in the value of excellence right i mean some people don't believe in excellence some people don't believe in perfection right it's just a question of you know good enough right and then some people really strive and always want to push themselves and those are the people that you try to find and those are the people that you try to partner with and every community has that Mm -hmm. unfortunately that is not reflected in the museum sector but that doesn't mean that they don't exist and I I think that I speak for myself and for many other people when I say I'm tired of hearing museum workers and especially people in leadership in museums say we just don't know where to find these people well where are they are there qualified people out there who can do this right it's like hello yes (laughs) Yes, there are people of every race, of every sexuality, in every geographic region who are smart and interesting and have something to contribute. And if you can't find them, then that really says something more about your skill set. Hmm.
2: Yeah, for than sure. It
3: does, you know, about their lack of numbers or their existence or non existence.
2: Yeah, and to you, you know, speaking, you know, to your point of. What is included or enveloped within the museum or within the organization as as conveying meaning or value? If you look at what is not, right? I mean, um, there's there's definitely um, work to be work to be done there um, at at kind of analyzing the the semiotics and meaning around um, a lot of that. And speaking of of um, 2017 and the, you know, the status of things as it is at this point in time, you know, I look back at your MCN talk and realize that that was given mere days prior to the presidential election here in the United yeah. States. Sure and is. we we all know how that turned out. Um, but how does this heightened level of polarization or uncertainty that we're experiencing, um, you know, throughout the fabric of our society impact um, the public's ability to trust institutions in a way. you know, be it government or be it museums like how is how is this the situation that we're that we're living in impacting things in your opinion?
3: In my opinion, everyone's on edge. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's suspicious. That's what polarization does. Mm. you know It's like well if you're not on this end of the pole, then I have to be suspicious of you because I don't necessarily believe in the spectrum. Um, and so the spectrum becomes unintelligible and I don't know what to make of anything that's not you know, what I understand to be my position. I think that in this time... Museums have a tremendous amount of power that they can wield if they choose to. It's the same amount of power that they had before Trump was elected, but this can add some urgency to it. Um, People want to know that institutions are indeed thinking of the public's best interests. And one of the things that I think is a little bit upsetting is that... um, there people want to kind of stake out this neutral territory and i think that's very dangerous and i think that that has gotten the museum sector into the jam that it's in now quite frankly it's so neutral that for scores of people who would be natural you know members supporters visitors um what, not stakeholders, but what's the word? Hmm. Board members, right? Sure. People who would naturally, because they're into the arts, they're upwardly mobile, they have a certain class status, a certain educational background, right? I mean, that's hmm. what we're talking about when we talk about the museum community or the museum sector. Yeah. Well, every race has this, every sexuality has this, every ethnicity has this, and every geographical region has this, right? Mm-hmm. Um. However the public always is assumed to be neutral and that neutrality always takes on a racial, uh, understanding, right? I don't have to tell you what it is, but I bet you can guess it when we're talking about the public. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. And who do you begin to envision in your mind as your every person?
2: Right. So, you know, looking back at this MCN talk, you, you know, you, you really astutely point out that that libraries have been making great strides and kind of earning higher higher levels of credibility by championing the rights and civil liberties of those they serve. And I I might even go further and say that I think this is this progress is really due to the fact that libraries have kind of successfully transitioned into a, into a service model, right? With mm-hmm. um, a primary focus on providing access to knowledge for everybody. Yeah. Um, and so do you think, you know, A, do you think museums might learn from this uh, transition I sure to a service? of course they will. And ha- how, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, is there, are there things we can look to and point to and say, um, yes, this, this is where we need to pivot and this is where we should be um, working toward, you know? Um, mm-hmm. th-
3: yes. So one thing is um, when museums talk about diversity and inclusion or they talk about cultural equity or they talk about, you know, expanding their publics, um, you know, it's, it's not enough to just talk about it, but um, you have to actually make those audiences... Aware of the fact that, A, you would like them to be, you know, at your table. Mm -hmm. And then you have to court them just like you would court anybody because nobody's going to give you the time of day just because, right? Yeah. No free lunch in this capitalist society we live in, right? Rule number one, econ. Um, But I do think that, for example, when I was doing the research for this paper, I interviewed Arnold Lehman at Hmm. the Brooklyn Museum of Art. And he said, you know, we have been so tremendously successful because we took an activist stance. We said, Brooklyn is a multidimensional, multifaceted, multicultural, multilingual community. And we're going to make sure that in every facet of our operation, and in our institution, we're going to reflect that. we're not going to settle for oh well this is just how the cards fell right we're going to go out there and if people aren't coming to us then we're going to go to them and we're going to find out why they're not coming to us and what can we do differently right and we're going to be aggressive about it and we're going to pursue you know be not perseverant but uh
2: determined and yeah yeah, dedicated you know
3: what i'm saying like persistent is (laughs) the word i was trying to say (laughs) yes you know um and so I think that libraries are kind of, they have an easier sell because there's a ton of books there and there's computers that people can use and there's already stuff that people want. And in museums with collections, a lot of times that is the case, but a lot of times you have to tell people why they should want that stuff in the first place. Right. And you really have to be active and you really have to be deliberate um, and you, you can't take anything personally and you can't be willing to take no for an answer, you know?
0: Yeah. Fari, one of the things that I think is really interesting coming out of this discussion is you're sort of talking a lot about um, neutrality and taking almost an activist stance. There was a 2013 study in the UK which was around public trust in museums. And when the Museums Association in the UK wrote about it, they noted that... It it suggested that museums are highly admired because of their apolitical stance, and there was a strong sense, and again, this was a few years ago and it was in the UK, but there was a strong sense that if museums started telling people what to think or became spaces for controversial debate, it might damage their integrity. In fact, the Museums Association UK went so far as to say, attempting to shape values even in a transparent way could be seen by the public as betraying a museum's essential purpose of conveying factual information." But I think particularly because of the current political climate and even just in general, it really feels like there's a lot of pressure from within our sector to be political and I think a lot of it actually comes from the people working within our sector who themselves are seeking to make change, so I'm curious as to what you think about this tension and how we sort of resolve this idea, this gap between almost a a, a notion that public trust may relate to neutrality, or or, or does it? I mean, I, I'm really curious to unpack those ideas.
3: Well, I guess what I would want to know more about were the kinds of methods behind the survey, mm-hmm. who was surveyed, who were amongst the surveyors, you know? Um, because one of the things I was put on to when I got to MCN was the Visitors of Colour project yeah. by um, Nikhil Trivedi. And who is the other person that works with him on that?
0: Uh, is, is it Porsche who does that?
3: Is Porsche Moore it is the other Porsche, one? Yeah. yeah, Porsche Moore. Yeah. Um, and I think it's brilliant and fantastic, and it is so needed and so necessary because until visitors of color tell museums, look, we're tired of the same hackneyed narrative that you keep serving us, mm-hmm. and we're tired of your interpretation of our history and of our culture and of our contributions. To science, innovation, or what have you, right? When will you, and this goes back to the question of excellence, right? So, who gets to judge and who gets to interpret what from our rich history and artistic traditions is excellent and what is not excellent? Mm-hmm. And why? And how, and what makes you the authority on that, right? And so, um, when I teach their uh, entries in my class, A lot of times my students, who also, you know, Suno is, as you said in the introduction, a historically black university. So my students are African-American for the most part. And when I, you know, expose them to this, they're like, oh, yeah, I can relate to that. I can definitely relate to that. Let me tell you about the last time I went to such and such museum. you know, and everyone has stories. Everyone has stories, and some of them are recent, and some of them are like, I don't even go to museums because when I was in fourth grade, this thing happened, and it just turned me off completely. Yeah. You know, so I really do have to, I think that we all should question, like you were saying, Jeffrey, this public, who is the public Mm. that gets to say, you know, this is what museums should do or should be. Right. How I mean, how can we say that attempting to shape values is at odds with um, disseminating factual information? Are those two things not in alignment? Hmm. Are those two things automatically contrary to one another? I don't think so. Hmm.
2: Big stuff. Yeah. Um before we let you go, Fari, I, there's, uh, just, I'm personally curious. I noticed that when you, you write your name, you use all lowercase letters. Why is that?
3: Um, it's kind of an homage to Bell Hooks, mm-hmm. who is a feminist theorist and also a writer and um, a social critic, cultural critic.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And that's not her given name but she writes under the name Bell Hooks because she is herself paying homage to her grandmother hmm. and i love the way that she doesn't capitalize it and i love the way that she takes her grandmother's name because she is representing for everybody's grandmother she's representing for all of those black women who you know had a contribution to this society that whose names we don't remember and you know who we might not capitalize Right. because they aren't seen as important. Hmm. Um, in addition, she also doesn't capitalize it because she's like, I want you to talk about my ideas, not my name. And so I really I really want people to engage with the scholarship. I mm-hmm. want them to engage with the analysis. I want them to engage with the critique, with the level of imagination, you know? Um, and it's not really supposed to be about a cult of personality right so that's those are some of the things i've borrowed from from her
2: very cool and so if listeners to the podcast uh want to stay in touch with your scholarship and with your ideas um where might they be able to do that
3: um actually i'm on the editorial board of CreateEquity.com, and so people can check out some of the work that i am helping to do research and writing on Um, and until then, I guess they'll have to follow me on Twitter, Fari underscore Inzinga.
2: Cool. And we'll put links to all this stuff in in the show notes so that listeners can, uh, can definitely stay in touch and, and stay up to date with, uh, the amazing thinking and, and work and, uh, scholarship that, that, that you're doing. It's, it's, it's fantastic stuff. So Fari, thanks so much for, uh, being a part of, of Museo Punks.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and really, really fun.
0: Adriel Lewis is a self-taught musician, poet, curator, coder, and visual artist who believes that imagination is key to transforming cultural paradigms. As the curator of digital and emerging media at the Smithsonian Asia Pacific American Center, he is focused on exploring intersectional identities in the US and contemporary Asian diasporic art. He is also part of the Ill Literacy Art Collective and sometimes moonlights on design projects with various artists and nonprofits. Adriel frequently travels to different parts of Asia with particular interest in how digital space shapes global communities and how varying levels of freedom of expression channel artistic political imagination. Adriel can be found across online platforms as at drizzle, D-R-Z-Z-L. Adriel, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. It's so wonderful to have you joining us here on our first season back of MuseoPunks.
1: Ah, so excited.
0: We have just given you a a sort of grand introduction with your full bio and I really want to drill down a little bit into the Asian Pacific American Center and the work that you do there. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? I'm not sure everyone of our listeners would be familiar with what uh, one of the centers is at the Smithsonian and a little bit more about your job.
1: Okay, cool, cool. So um, the Smithsonian is the institution that essentially presents the the national museums of the United States. Uh, So we are a complex that includes a bunch of museums and research centers and a zoo and observatories. Um, We are a part of a center that or we are the center that focuses on uh, Asian Pacific American history and culture. But we're not a traditional museum in that we don't have a brick-and-mortar building. We don't have a traditional kind of collection. And a lot of the work that we've been doing because of those circumstances have been, I think, a lot more along the lines of uh, tackling topics that we hear our communities, um, you know, uh, who, who are interested in talking about these things. And, and so because we don't have a collection, we, we do have a community and and that's kind of the way that we look at it. Um, we, our our flagship project recently has been, uh, what we, what we call cultural labs, which are basically museum happenings that like museums feature art and, um, historic objects and, uh, you know, are places of learning and realization, but they're developed from start to finish using community organizing practices, as opposed to, as opposed to going straight to sort of the traditional museum handbooks for putting this together. Um, and so we really kind of see, for example, as opposed to lineups for group shows, we're developing arts collectives, um, artists collectives out of the people who are who are developing the work. Instead of the curators telling the answers, the curators are asking the questions. And, and we see the work that we, that we curate as prompts for, for things that, uh, that our visitors can come in and actually engage with directly and on site with both the artists and, and the curators.
2: Nice. So, uh, one of the recent um, culture labs was uh, was called Crosslines. Lines, and um, it, you know was kind of uh, pitched or talked about as a as a culture lab on intersectionality, and it, it featured you know more than forty artists and scholars. Right? How did this particular was this the first culture lab that you did, or was? Ye-
1: yeah, that was the first culture lab. Um, it took place at uh, the Smithsonian Arts and Industries Building, which cool. used to be the U.S. National Museum. So before any of the other Smithsonian museums opened, this was kind of where we showed off our stuff. Yeah, um, back in the late eighteen hundreds.
2: Walk us through the process of how that that particular culture lab took shape. I mean, how do you um, yeah. how do you start talking with participants and 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 that sort of thing?
1: Um, so I guess that all kind of starts with. Like when I when I started at the Smithsonian, um, I I had come fully from a background as a full time artist, um, you know, who was also doing you know web and graphic design um, on a freelance basis, and so going from that into becoming a federal employee of like the largest <laughs> institution in the world was like you know definitely a, a big ice bucket of water uh, Um, you know really I was like why is it so hard to buy a pencil right Um, (laughs) but um, you know I think it also just gave me a lot of um, of avenues to think about things in in just like in a kind of a scale that that I, I just really couldn't imagine when I was just kind of working working on, on, on my own thing, which yeah. I, I really appreciate. And I think, um, you know, that's, that's where I kind of came to console myself whenever I was like going through crazy bureaucracy was like the fact that it's like, okay, well, you know, at what, at some points, this was just an idea. And, you know, there's all these checks and balances now, but, you know, like, you can actually be creative in the way that you navigate that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that kind of goes into, um, you know, uh, w- when, when you were reading my bio and I was talking about kind of uh, different levels of freedom of expression, you know, like we think about that in different societies, but in each setting you go into, you walk into a bar, you walk into a museum, you work in a museum, you're constantly navigating what you can and can't say. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like, you know, uh, a creative exercise in its own. And so the Culture Lab was basically uh you know What we came up with after, I think, several years of just learning the ropes of what it means to work in the Smithsonian and, and how can we still have difficult conversations, um, but in ways that, that still, I think, are digestible to people who are, um, are used to kind of traditional exhibitions and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, fantastic. In terms of the subject matter, Crosslines was an exploration of intersectionality. Mm -hmm. We're talking today a lot about trust and public trust. How important is intersectionality to this trust dynamic between museums and the public?
1: Sure, so intersectionality is a term that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. um, And it is essentially the understanding that uh, I think past concepts of like diversity and things like that have still kind of segmented people into groups that are very uh, one-dimensional, and mm-hmm. so diversity is oftentimes like allocated to just race or to just gender and things like that. and, and intersectionality is is really um, recognizing that that uh, the ways that we as people um interact with each other and with the world is this really messy complicated um smorgasbord of all the different things that um that that encompass us um you know like the ways that that my race and my sexuality and my gender collides is really how uh how my experience of the world is formed as opposed to you know like me going through one situation and being like this happened to me because of my asianness you know and so um you know for, for me growing up in California and in a very diverse neighborhood um, and and city and environment intersectionality you know like even though the, the word was relatively new to me the the concept was um, you know very or- organically understood but mm-hmm. um, when we started talking about it at the Smithsonian um, you know, some of the reactions that we got within the institution was that, oh, this term is very academic, Um, you know, can you use a different word to promote this event because um, the visitors might not understand it. And, you know, I saw that as actually an opportunity to do what the Smithsonian does best, which is take concepts that are foreign and abstract and make them... uh, accessible family friendly f- even fun, you know, and it's like mm. if you can yeah. if you can, you know kind of kind of what I say a lot is you know if the Air and Space Museum can explain rocket science, then surely we can explain how someone can be gay and a woman and black at the same time so
2: uh, cross lines and culture labs they uh, you know from the distance that I'm, I'm viewing them from, uh, seem to be really making some strides at achieving the goal of kind of growing trust between uh, a museum and, and it's, and it's public. And in some ways, uh, and in interesting ways, I think it, it kind of blurs the line between the two and in, in fundamental ways, how has this idea or this progressive idea of culture labs, how is it being received internally and particularly among your curatorial colleagues?
1: Hmm. Well, specifically within our center, we're super duper small. And so yeah. we're, we operate like a grassroots organization on a day-to-day basis because we have yeah. like a staff of like seven or eight. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so, you know, whether you're a curator or an admin or education, um, when you have an idea, it it's heard and it's processed and um, you know this whole idea of community organizing based museum practice isn't just me Um, most of the people on my staff come from sort of Non traditional backgrounds or backgrounds that are outside of museum scopes, and we all kind of bring that to the table. So, like mm. one of uh, you know, one of my co-curators, um, Kaleva Korea is like based in the Big Island of Hawaii. He has done everything from you know like marine research to like farming his own land, and so he brings that to the table in ways that me as digital and emerging media curator, you know, it's very new to me. But I think that the the idea of just kind of like trusting trusting what's around you and especially for museums like if if you are to be a reflection of the society that you are contextualizing then then where can you loosen the grasp you know like where can you kind of as a curator be the person uh, or the group of people who are actually uh taking taking down barriers uh as opposed to kind of putting up guidelines and and um you know rules and, and things like that
2: yeah, it sounds like there's a there's a, a really strong element of cross-disciplinarity or transdisciplinarity there that um, really helps to enable these type of things.
1: Yeah, and I think it's 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 kinda of scary for, for people who are coming from more traditional museum backgrounds. Um, and I get it because you're operating from a status quo of like the your average visitor is going to come into a space expecting answers because that's what, that's what they've been raised, right? They've been raised with this certain kind of didactic, um, you know, with a certain kind of pedagogy that, um, you know, could be its own lesson in itself, you know, but, but that's kind of where I draw from my experience as an artist. Cause I started off as a spoken word artist. And so you're, you know, a lot of the job is going into a space and saying, I'm going to do poetry and then and then proceeding to dismantle what people think is poetry by mm. presenting something different, right? And then so that's kind of what we're doing with these culture labs is like, we're a museum. We're going to do this museum happening now in real time while we do this amazing show. Let us also um, complicate the ways that you um, are used to interacting with museums.
0: Yeah. I think that's really interesting in your curatorial practice you've championed this idea of sort of the democratic sharing of information and how that gets unlocked by digital space can you talk to us a little bit more about how this concept comes together because it seems really um, aligned with what you're talking about and I'm I'm curious how how much of this has been formed by your world not just then in sort of uh, spoken word spaces and artistic spaces but
1: also in digital spaces Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, you know, like I, I didn't think I was going to get the job when I applied for it. And, you know, like I didn't know anybody at the Smithsonian, someone forwarded me the job application and I just filled it out. Like, like it was a, you know, like I was filling out an application for like Topshop or something. I don't know. But it was like, (laughs) uh, and then, and, and I didn't really get, I didn't really know what a curator was. Um, Mm -hmm. and Googling it didn't help. (laughs) <laughs> um, but what I do like to say is that I am one of the early results of the the fact that to be a curator has become a more democratic concept, um, you know, to the dismay of some curators who I think, you know, worked really hard and, you know, like to, to, to get that title, um, you know, but at the same time, it's, it's the, again, it's the same thing as like poets who um, have their MFAs and are salty at like thirteen year olds who are you know like on on the microphone and also calling themselves poets, right? Um, and and that's that's a kind of tension that I think is not necessarily to be resolved, but rather to be a case study for kind of how we as people just kind of you know decide how we're going to move forward in in the ways that we that we communicate and, and share knowledge. Um, but you know a lot of how I've been able to excel has been specifically from people that I've encountered who've just trusted me. yeah, you know, like despite the fact that I don't have a traditional museum background or despite the fact that I'm new, um, you know, and and that valued the fact that my questioning and my um my wandering around, uh, had the potential to make something better because you're able to ask questions that you can't if you've been in the museum world for for hella long, right? And so, you know, I'm I'm approaching my fourth year um, in the museum world, and I'm feeling that kind of uh, unfamiliarity fade. Yeah. Um, I'm starting to get used to things and starting to assume stuff, and and you know it when you start referring to people or artists by just the last name and like just <laughs> mo- continuing forward without explaining things and you know using acronyms and stuff like that and and living in D.C. working at the Smithsonian, like I am, oh so susceptible to that, right? <laughs> and so um, you know like when I started realizing that that was happening, um, you know, which was happening the more and more I was being invited to speak at. Um, you know on podcasts and at events and things like that um, and I started started being looked at as like sort of an expert um, you know which which was also just kind of weird just because I am still very new to the museum world um, I found that like a solution is to hand off certain responsibilities to people who do not have the kind of I would say overexposure of of museum, Uh, manner mannerisms right and then so you know it it began with like first making sure that I was just hanging out with enough artists and 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 activists and organizers and people who completely don't know the museum world because then when I refer to certain things they can be like what 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 the hell are you talking about right Um, but then uh, also seeing well how can I actually rope these people into the work that I do you know like how, how do how do we make sure that we're not just working with artists who have been through the museum circuit before how do we make sure that we're constantly also including organizers and and um you know people from other fields who can ask the questions that that you know might seem like no-brainers to um to those of us who have kind of like just you know dri- driven driven in you know driven around the block in, enough times already
2: yeah and and You know, thinking about this idea um, of uh, democratic sharing of information and and doing research uh, on this episode and, um, you know, kind of internet stalking you to learn about (laughs) your work, um, (laughs) I kind of, uh, you know, I kind of uh, realized that you could potentially be taking cues from like peer-to-peer software and, you know, and that got me thinking of, you know, what what is your take on this idea of museum as a node rather than museum as a gatekeeper, right? Is that kind of what we're thinking about and what we're talking about here?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I grew up, I grew up, you know, stealing so much music. Yeah, via Napster. the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody did, you know. Um, and um, you learn so much when you kind of stare at this progress bar on, like. Cause, uh, yeah. or like you know BitTorrent, <laughs> right? And you know peer to peer is a great example, right? The more the more seeds, the more peers, the faster the download, right? right? You want uh, you know, and and you're literally you know trying to access a story. Let's say you're downloading a movie. You want to access a story. You're you're going to choose. You're going to choose the link that has the most peers because you know that you're you're pulling information from a bunch of different sources as opposed to one person. Um, and if you have if you're trying to download a movie and you have one if you have one seed, if that person decides that they just want to log off or kick you off, then you're done, right? But if you have like you know 300 seeds, then it doesn't matter you know like who logs off. There there's always going to be someone else to kind of like pick up pick it up. Right, and I think that that's kind of you know where uh, as a as a as a curator of digital that's that's where I am really interested in stuff um, because that can manifest in in person to person situations that have nothing to do with pixels or or touch screens or you know like uh, all those things that look really nice on like digital digital program brochures at museums but right. but um you know <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. don't really speak to kind of the potential of of digital culture you know i, I think For we sure. set, we set the bar so low when we think digital and it's just like you know when when people ask like but what's did what's the digital component of this project it kind of irks me because it's like you just really want to see a picture of a 7 year old with their finger on a touch screen you know I can right. give that to you if that's what you want you know but there's so much more there's so much more and so yeah democratic uh, understandings of of information is exactly why now people on Pinterest and Tumblr and and Instagram and all that are calling themselves curators and, th- and that's empowerment and and I think that um, you know the more people who feel like they can be curators like the better because that's, that's just more seeds for these stories
0: so Adriel one thing that I've been really thinking about and I can't figure it out. So this is this is something I've been stuck on for a little while. Lately, there have been a lot of studies coming out showing that the public's trust in institutions, and that means government and financial institutions like banks is dropping, Mm -hmm. but even institutions like science, the, the public's trust is eroding. And in fact, it's dropping to pretty unprecedented levels. And one of the things I've been trying to make sense of and work out is whether there's a relationship between this rise of the kind of, peer-to-peer citizen curation where we trust uh we trust the person who happens to have the file we're after Mm -hmm. but we don't necessarily trust the institution because that nature of authority is shifting and i'm wondering if you think there is that relationship whereby we're much more likely to trust someone we can connect to directly rather than someone through an institution? And if so, how that starts to have an impact for museums?
1: Yeah, um, I think that, uh, you know, like sometimes I feel like museums often, I feel like museums are, are asking the wrong question, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, people are, are trusting institutions less and less. And so the institutions then ask, well, how do we get people to trust us again, right? And, and I think that that's, that's not necessarily the best way to, to tackle that issue um, because I don't think it's about getting people to trust you again like the way that they did it in the 70s or whatever. Um, it's about how do we understand the shifting nature of what trust means, right? And, um, you know, again, using, like, uh, you know, an analogy of, like, social media, like, part of what makes social media social media is you know like at least among among individuals it's like on instagram i'll like your posts more if i see that you're liking my posts more right like that's kind mm-hmm. of how it works um because there's there's a presence and a conversation right it's like oh this person is interested in what, in, in what I'm saying. Um, if this person is interested in what I'm saying, I'm going to be interested in why they're interested in what I'm saying. And so therefore I'm interested in what they're saying. Right. Um, and, and, and that's different than just kind of, you know, going to a well of information and just drawing from it, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then, and then having to like, then evaluate without conversing with that source, um, you know, what it is that i can trust and what it is that that i that i can't right if i question something um they're like where where is the room for me to process that you know like uh in the museum space and i think that that's that's hard to find and then so people you know even if they're getting their information from institutions they're processing it with their with their friends and eventually they're just kind of like oh well i can just ask my friends in the first place because they'll Mm -hmm. they'll talk back
2: yeah, so, Adriel, I mean, do you ever think about or envision what it would look like to the sector if museums put complete trust into their publics, and 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 ever think about like how the museum practice would change if that were the case?
1: Um. Yeah, they would look like culture labs. <laughs> I mean, yeah. um, but but here's the thing, though. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to replace anything. I think that that's like people. Generally, you know, that, that's the fear with digital, you know, like people are worried that like, well, if, if you do a digital exhibition, then, you know, no one's ever going to look at a thing again. And it's like, no, we're just looking at more options. Right. And so right now, um, exhibitions have the monopoly on how people experience objects in art um and so we're just kind of thinking you know and i think that there's definitely you know like it's not like i go into museums and every exhibition i go to i'm like this would have been better if it was a culture lab i wish i could draw on this right now you know it's, like, it's not necessarily like that you know like i think there's mm-hmm. d- there's definitely a lot to be said about exhibitions they are important important formats that i think um you know it, it is good yeah, uh, in, in many circumstances to have someone who has thoroughly researched something and is providing, um, you know, their opinion, even if framed as fact, like, I, I see the value in it. I, I'm not trying to kill that. So I just want to make that clear. But um, I, I, I do think that there is something to be said about offering another way, you know, and, and when I was in Hong Kong, uh, in 2014, uh, for the uh, for the uprising, um, that was one of the the first situations that I encountered where I was like, wow, this is really um, what organic, you know, curating with trust is because there was no chief curator of this occupation, but there were art installations everywhere. There were sculptures. There were um, posters. Um, you know, people were making art live. There, there was, you know, there were workshops happening and all of it was um, telling a story in a very concise and tight way. Right. And, um, and, and because nobody was trying to say that this was a great exhibition or that this is something that, you know, like museums should do like that, just that, that the, the, limitations that you get once you bring that into the, into the, uh, mind space just wasn't there, but I got everything that I all ever wanted to get from all the other pastimes I had gone to Hong Kong and and left museums unsatisfied I found there was local art I had a sense of like what society there wanted to be I had a sense of what society had been and and is Um, you know I was I was entertained I was you know that there were certain things that amazed me I had moments where I was like how did they do that you know like all that stuff and and and, and I also got a very accurate understanding of at least how society sees itself, you know, which is very different mm-hmm. from, you know, and, and I, I would argue is no less accurate than how the state or, or whatever, whatever kind of institution sees, um, you know, the, its subject matter as.
2: Yeah, just, I'm just curious, how, how do you refer to the non-APA entities that are involved with Culture Lab? Is it public? Is it audience? Is it community is it do you do you do you have some type of ethos when when dealing with non uh museum or center um participants
1: um not really okay um i mean i think it that's actually been something that i've been kind of wrestling with Mm -hmm. like right now we're writing our manifesto for the culture labs because eventually we're going to uh we, we want this to be a model that, that other museums and organizations feel empowered to adopt yeah. um, at, at any scale. Like we work with over 40, 50 artists, but you could do a culture lab with three artists as long as you pay them and there's local representation and you're thinking intersectionally, you know? And so right. it's like, um, you know, I'm, but but we're writing this manifesto and, and there's certain segments where we're thinking about like the institution, um, the artists, the mm-hmm. art, um, you know, the other kinds of participants that are like curated. But then when it comes to like the people who come into the space and engage with the stuff, like sometimes I'll call them users. Sometimes I'll call them visitors. Sometimes we'll call them the public. Um, I'm not really happy with any of those terms quite yet. Um, and so that's something that I'm still kind of figuring out.
0: Well, I mean, in some ways you almost need a term that crosses the intersectionality of their roles as well. You know, I mean, this is that people aren't just one role even when they come into the museum, not just at a personal level, but even, you know, if we're talking about someone who comes as a visitor but then becomes a participant, Mm -hmm. you know, throughout, there is also, I, I think there's one of the things that we do in museums is we often have ways of thinking about our audiences or publics or visitors and even, that do not themselves they relegate them to one role whereas they're not actually one thing even within one visit and even at the same time within that visit so even sort of the way the museum thinks about who its publics or participants are there's a there's a narrowing or a blanking of how we think like we think that down as opposed to broadening that out
1: yeah yeah
0: Adriel, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on to Museo MuseoPunks and sharing with us the work that you do.
1: Yeah, this was super fun to talk about. And I know we're just scratching the surface. And so I'm, I'm so excited just to hear who else you have on this series. Um, I'll definitely be be tuning in. Awesome. And uh, so, Adriel, if,
2: um, if listeners want to stay in touch, um, fo- uh, follow your work with Culture Labs, um, where can they do that? On the internet
1: um, so um, I would say that the dashboard would be SmithsonianAPA.org, apa um, and that's also smithsonian apa is also our our username on um, Twitter Facebook Instagram um, and then for myself personally it's drizzle with no vowels so drzzl um, it's drizzle.com for the website and then I'm on um, I'm I'm on Twitter and Instagram, kind of. Um, I've been I've been getting like worse at social, but you know I'm I'm still around. Um, <laughs>
2: it's it's yeah. all good. It's all good. Uh, thanks so much, Adriel, uh, for for uh, speaking with us today. It was it was awesome. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, Suze, uh, a lot to digest there in, uh, from those guests.
0: Yeah, a huge amount to digest. It feels so nice to be doing this show again, and I have just remembered how stimulating these conversations are. Uh, you sort of forget, I think, uh, when you've had some time away from it, just how interesting and how meaty these subjects are and how great it is to talk with really thoughtful people yeah. about them.
2: I, you know, I really feel like Fari and Adriel kind of hit all all sides of this issue, um, kind of balanced sides, uh, really. Um, kind of strong inquiry into into this concept of trust and how museums can um, can start to operate in 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 this in this space. So um, yeah, and I'm going to be th- like you. I'm going to be thinking about this quite a bit over the next couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, I'd also really love to keep talking to people about it. I know that I will be reaching out to Adriel and Tafari online. They've both given their Twitter handles and we will obviously drop those into the show notes as well. But if people want to find us on the internet, so that they can continue talking to us about this issue where can they do it
2: all the show notes for this episode can be found at museopunks.org and you can tweet at us at museopunks I think we both want to also send out a really big thank you to the American Alliance of Museums for um, lighting the fire again
0: yeah, absolutely. We are now officially presented by the American Alliance of Museums, and it is such a great pleasure to be back on the uh, digital airways, so to speak. But I think also within that, we should give a special thanks to Liz Neely and Rob Stein for helping make this new season of Museo Punks happen.
2: Yeah, definitely. And with a new season comes a new graphic design for, uh, for, for Twitter and the website and, um, really just another shout out to, um, Selena Roboletto for, uh, the, the amazing graphic work she did for, for the, uh, reboot of season two. Um, so definitely thank you.
0: Absolutely. I'm really excited. I'm hoping we can get t-shirts or something so that I can be wearing this logo everywhere.
2: Yeah, sounds good. Well, Suze, this is the first episode of season two in the can and I, uh, I really look forward to, to, to next, uh, next episode.
0: Yeah, me too, Jeffrey. It has been so much fun and I can't wait to speak to you for the next episode of
2: Museo Punks.